All right, well, good morning. Happy Father's Day, all you dads out there. This is a, kind of a fun holiday for me. I, I grew up in, uh, in a home where my dad was a golfer. He's actually right here in the front row, so it's kind of fun to talk about fatherhood and dads when your dad's here. But this holiday for us always commemorated two things. Dad got to watch the U.S. Open interrupted, and as a family, we partook of a calorically irresponsible amount of Taco Bell. <laughs> and that's what that meant. And some traditions are worth carrying on, as that's probably exactly where I'll be in about five hours. So, so this is a kind of a fun holiday for us. We're, we are going to talk about dads today, as, as Troy was talking about. We're going to talk about fatherhood. And I want to approach this topic sensitively because I recognize that not every one of us had the same experience with dad. And I'm speaking from an earthly perspective. For, for some of us, we had great earthly dads. And we had the kind of dad that just was there for us. He encouraged us. He, he spoke into our lives with intention. He reflected the love of Christ in an incredible way. And he, he really mirrored who God is to us. And for others, there was an experience where dad was either distant and kind of may have withheld some of the things you needed for whatever reason. Dad was absent entirely or dad was abusive. And the reason I mention that is because if I go through what I've prepared this morning and I don't let you know that I'm aware of that, it can be really easy to just go, you know what, this whole dad thing you're talking about, that's not what I experienced. That wasn't what happened for me. And so it's very difficult for me to relate to this heavenly father concept. And so I want you to know that I'm aware that that's existing in this room. And this is what I would submit to you. And I'll, I'll bring this up again in my conclusion. It, the ground gets leveled at the cross. Your heavenly father is just so good that the difference between an absent or an abusive dad and the, the best earthly example of dad you can imagine is negligible compared to how perfect his love is for us. I don't mean that it didn't affect you or didn't impact you or those things need to be worked through and, and, and just cared for. I mean that they pale in comparison to how good your heavenly father is regardless of which of these experiences you had. Uh, we're going to talk about two main concepts of God's fatherhood today. And for those of you that love to take notes, you're going to get ahead of the game here. Your first two points are this. We're going to look at God's relationship and his desire for relationship with us, as well as his authority. And, and already those sound like kind of paradoxical concepts. And I, I'm prepared to show you today they are not. And they are both extremely important for us to have a healthy foundation to build upon when we interact with the Lord. So, seeing as how that sounds like a monumental task, I think the best thing for me to do right now before we go any further would be, let me just pray for all of us. So, Lord, we do. We, we come to you this morning very humbly. Lord, uh, I am humbled by the task at hand. But, Lord, I know that you're in this. I know that you desire relationship with us, and yet I know that authority is something that needs to exist in that relationship. And so as we move into this topic, big as it is, we just ask that you would really prepare our hearts and just really knit this in to who we are, that, that you are a good, good father and that we are loved by you. So we pray this in your name. Amen. All right, to go after this task today, we'll be in the book of Luke chapter 10. We're going to start in verse 38 and we're going to move all the way through the end of 10 and into the first four verses of chapter 11. So effectively, we're going to look at this Martha and Mary narrative and then we're going to look at the Lord's Prayer. And this is just going to be kind of a sweet thing. I, I like this passage a lot. So here we go. Verse 38. Now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. 
But Martha was distracted with much serving, and she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me alone to serve? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be uh, taken away from her. We start chapter 11. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, give us each day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins as we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us, and lead us not into temptation. Now, we're starting in the end of 10 because I think this Martha-Mary dynamic, this little interaction that we read about between Christ and these two sisters does so much to inform the way that we look at God and his desire for relationship with us. You know, these sisters have some similarities, though it would seem like at surface value in the text, it's kind of like they couldn't be more different. But if we look a little closer, we'll see that they're both faithful disciples. They both believed, they both had been converted, and they both had a response to grace, which was when Jesus arrived, they rejoiced. But it's sort of at that point that the similarities stop, and from there, it's two very different paths As from rejoicing, they go out and kind of moving in two different directions. Martha could be described as being very active and impulsive. She spoke her mind often. And she was kind of moving to and from this picture of serving and and kind of this picture of agitation and anxiety. Mary, on the other hand, was kind of the quiet, considerate one. She thought more than she spoke. Sitting at the Lord's feet, receiving counsel and love from Christ, she was really this picture of devotion and commitment to him. When we look at the two, Martha kind of rejoices and then goes from there to busy herself with serving what would have been considered a suitable refreshment for her guests. Mary, on the other hand, kind of finds herself tucked away at the feet of the Lord being fed in a very different way. I want to camp on this for just a second because I think for many of us today, as I start to describe Martha, some things can start to click for us. She's caught up in the same traps that we can get caught up in times. It's this snare of the world. It's culture's expectation on us. This sister who's busy and scurrying around the house has a cultural expectation that says, hey, listen, when somebody comes into my home, I have to do these things or I will fall short of what my culture is expecting of me. Anyone kind of feel where we might be going with this this morning? She's described as distracted with much serving, anxious and troubled. Distracted, anxious, and troubled. I don't need a show of hands, but that might describe some of us in Scottsdale, Arizona today, might it? I love this because Jesus is going to speak directly into Martha's life in this area, but the way that he does it is so incredibly helpful because what he, what he does is he comes in, and at first glance, when you read verse 41, and we're going to throw it up here on the screen, It really looks like a harsh move on Jesus' part, but I want to submit to you today, this is incredibly loving. He looks at her, let's read it, it says, but but the Lord said to her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. I love the way one of the scholars says it. He says, like a wise doctor, our Lord saw the disease which was preying on Martha and at once prescribed the remedy. Like a caring parent, he exposed the fault into which his erring child had fallen and did not spare the rebuke that was needed. It's that idea of Ephesians 4.15, speaking the truth in love. 
And what Jesus doesn't miss that I think at times we do when we try to speak the truth in love is he doesn't just come to Martha and go, Martha, listen, here's the deal, sister. You have screwed this up, and I need you to go away and figure that out. I need you to go, go feel bad about that for a little while. You are troubled. You are anxious with many things. You go away. He doesn't do that. He comes to her just like a caring parent and goes, Martha, Martha, the problem's not Mary. The problem's actually you. But I love you enough to tell you that rather than letting you continue to just fumble around in this stronghold of anxiety. But he does something really unique here, and this is what I love. Let's read verse uh, 42. He says this, and it comes as a commendation to Mary, but that's not the point. The point wasn't let's elevate Mary. The point was this. But one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. Now, because we operate as kind of like scolded children sometimes when it comes to God, when we read that passage, what we hear is, Martha screwed up, you go to your room. Mary, great job, you get a gold star today. But that's not what's happening. The Lord, again, is coming in and going, Martha, Martha, it's better that you put your cultural expectation down and that you come over here. You see, he, he corrects her, but then he does something that I think we all need to get better at. He starts casting a vision for future fruit for, Mar for Martha. He says, listen, the good portion's over here. The solution to your anxiety and your trouble is right over here at my feet. He doesn't send her away because I want you to hear this loud and clear. God does not correct you by shaming you and telling you to go put your nose in the corner. He doesn't rub our nose in our sin. He pulls us closer. He makes us aware, and then he goes, come here. I correct within relationship. That's how God works. That's what great parents do. Great parents will pull children closer and go, listen, what you're doing is not going to work, but I love you. Let's do something different. When we speak the truth in love, we have to be willing to do what Jesus does here. We have to be willing to step in and to cast a vision for future fruit. This is what it can look like for you to walk out of your trouble and into something better based on what God has for you. We have to be willing to do that as the body of Christ. Now, my job being a pastor, I end up having to do this quite a bit. So people will land in my office and they'll sit there and they'll say, hey, Rustin, I'm a mess. And depending on the day and kind of how free I'm feeling or the relationship I have with them, every once in a while, I'll agree. I agree, you're a mess. And then from there, I kind of go, well, what's going on? And they'll say, well, you know, I just, I got all this stuff going on. And I'll say, well, what are you doing? Great question. What are you doing? And they'll look at me and they'll start to go, well, you know, I'm leading that HSM small group. I'm serving as an usher. I'm Tuesday nights. I'm with Darian. I'm da -da 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 -da. And they list off all these things. And I go, perfect. You know, you're doing a lot. Where are you just being? You're doing, yes, a lot. But where are you being? And the reality is, that is a deer-in-the-headlights look for a lot of us as believers. The idea of, of just tucking away to partake in the good portion, when we get busy, that's typically the first thing to go. And so we continue to serve because that's the expectation, even within the church. Do what you said. Let your yes be yes, right? And so we keep serving and serving and serving. And all of a sudden, that small group that we're facilitating that used to just flow out of the abundance of Christ's love for us, we haven't spent much time with him. He's not filling our tank, and we are exponentially running out of gas. One of the biggest lies that we believe in our life is that because we're doing something for Christ, it doesn't have a cost. It has a cost. You are a finite being. 
You have a finite amount of resources, energy, emotional, spiritual, relational, all of those have a capacity. And when you go giving, 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 and you don't give the Lord time to fill you up, you're giving away something you don't have. And that's hard. That's why at times you'll be trying to facilitate that small group and you'll go, this is hard. This feels like work. Well, you may need to go tuck away for the good portion and allow the Lord to fill you up. I, I think there's, this is something that kind of came to me as I was researching this passage. It's one of your points today, and it's put your merry time before your Martha time. That's on your notes. Put your merry time before your Martha time. Allow the Lord to fill you, and then out of the abundance of his love, of which there is an abundance, we give. See how that works? I think a lot of times we can make this idea of God desiring relationship with us or this good portion place that he says, please come to me, I enjoy this too, is really a New Testament thing. You know, that's really where we learn about this relationship. But the Old Testament, no, that's not really it. That's totally wrong. That was the whole point of the promised land. He, he brings the Israelites kind of right to the edge, and he goes, do you see that down there? I want you to go in. I want you to drive out all these pagan nations, and there I will have, what, a land of milk and honey. He's describing a safe, secure place where he can do what? I will be your God and you will be my people. He's wanted to dwell with us from the beginning, right? He liked to walk in the garden with Adam. This has always been his plan. It's the song that the Testaments sing across the scriptures. It's important for us to remember, kind of said it this way, the best portion for any Christian is God's grace and you'll find that at his feet. The reason this is so important is that if you don't understand that God desires time with you, that he desires relationship with you, not because it's best for you, but because it's the desire of his heart, it's going to be really hard for you to turn to him. Otherwise, what am I pointing you at this morning? All right, so if we've made a dent there in this idea that God really wants a relationship with you, we start to ask a different question, which is how do I respond or, or what's my role or posture in this relationship? And for a lot of us, it's really tough because unless I miss my mark, we don't have any of us in here who really understand what it's like to be the child of a king. And I, unless your dad was a king, which would be awesome, please come tell me about that. But the, the reality is this, we don't understand that royalty concept of what it means for dad to be not just a king, but the king of kings. Jesus is ministering into a very specific cultural dynamic here, and it's first century Rome. And Roman fatherhood was kind of unlike any other fatherhood. It was this virtually unlimited authority. I did some research. I'm going to share three kind of things that dad would do. And it's this right here. It, dad would have made decisions like this in a Roman culture. Whether a newborn would be raised in the family or outside of it. What do I mean by that? Child is born. Dad comes over. They weren't doing ultrasounds back then. They hadn't caught on yet. And so out comes the child, and dad finds out for the first time it's a little girl. You know what? I got plenty of girls. I don't need another little girl. Send her to your sister. She doesn't have kids. Send her to your mom. Send her to the friend across the street. She'll be raised over there. I don't need another girl. And nobody questions dad. Whether the child would be sold, killed, scourged, or pawned. What? You got that kid that can't straighten up and fly right? Just a lot of disciplinary issues here. Dad finally decides on a day where he's just had enough. All right, enough. Sell him into slavery. He's worth 40 pieces of silver. Enough's enough, and nobody questions dad. Oh, but it was a misunderstanding. No. Dad is the final authority. 
And lastly, whether a child would be allowed or refused marriage or divorce. Remind me, does that happen at five years old? Nope. Even in first century Rome, where people were getting married much earlier than they would today, still, that's a kind of a young adult decision. Uh Uh-uh. Dad made that decision. He decided what was best for you. The reason I share this with you is because Jesus' words are in contrast to the cultural norm at the time. I love this quote here. It's from a Roman jurist named Gaius, and he says this about Roman fatherhood. He says, Our children whom we have produced in lawful marriage are under our control. The right, this right is singular to Roman citizens, for there are hardly any other men who have such authority over their children as we have. It's a right. It's a hammer. It's a heavy weight that you hold over your family. As we move into this first section in verse 11, the the important thing is to to listen to Jesus' words are very caring and very loving here. And the question that he's responding to is essentially this. How do I approach God? How do I come before him? And what does that look like? Verse 2 says this. It says, Father, hallowed be your name. Now, I love that because it's pretty much my entire sermon in these first two words. Father indicates relationship. Hallowed indicates authority. It's like everything I'm going to say this morning right there in those first two words. But the idea is this. It's when we come to God, the first thing that we do is we have to honor and we have to revere him. We have to give him glory. That's a tough concept in our culture because our culture can be pretty irreverent. Am I right? I mean, you can argue with me, but preferably not now. But the reality is that we do a lot of things very irreverent. And it doesn't mean that any one of us individually is guilty of this. But just as a whole, that's just how we operate. Uh, anything that I teach you guys is typically the Lord has filtered through me and taught me some lessons along the way. And so as I was preparing this, I realized I do this a lot with God. I'll kind of come in the morning and I'll, I'll be at Starbucks and I'll be sitting there on my phone. And typically, if you see me at Starbucks, I have my head down because a lot of my college kids work at Starbucks. And their favorite thing to do to their beloved pastor is to embarrass me at 7.30 in the morning by screaming and shouting and writing weird things on my cup. That's what they love to do. So I typically, if you see me, I'm not trying to ignore you. I just don't want them to see me. So I'm on there doing email or something, and I see an email that says, hey, don't forget to pray for Bob. He's going in for surgery today. So quintessential downfall of every male on planet Earth, I can multitask, right? We can't, but we think we can. So here I am, and I'm going to multitask, and I go, okay, you know what? I'll just pray right now. So I start praying, Lord, would you just be with Bob, and Lord, you know what's going on there, and would you be with those doctors? Text message comes in. Hey, Rustin, are we still on for lunch today? I can multitask. Sure. So I'm going to text back while praying. So Lord, yeah, just be with Bob, because this surgery is a big deal, and it's going to happen today at lunch at the... I'm giving God like 10% of my attention... And I forget that I'm before a king, right? Man, the Lord really did something in that to me. I'm not really treating God like a king. I got a really great example of what hallowed looks like last summer. My wife and I went on a vacation, and we vacation very differently. She's sitting here in the front row, so I'm going to be gentle with this. But I'm, I'm like a sit-on-a-lawn-chair, don't-move-for-seven-days vacationer, okay? Some of you in the room? You know what I'm talking about? My favorite, my favorite vacation on the planet is a cruise because it's effectively a floating refrigerator. <laughs> I sit on a lawn chair. People bring me things. They come back after seven days. They're like, Mr. Rosello, we need you to leave now. Fair enough, okay? My wife, on the other hand, is extremely adventurous. She brings, the Lord has used her to bring a tremendous amount of just life into me, and it's so wonderful. But she is like the, 
ride off into the jungle on a quad, jump off a waterfall type person, okay? Now, I look at her sometimes, and I'm like, that sounds extremely dangerous. I watch National Geographic, I know what's in the jungle, okay? I'm out. So I wanna be on my lawn chair. So I hold her purse, and she goes and rides quads and jumps off waterfalls. Eight years of marriage, and she finally goes, we're going to New York. And I said, I think I'd rather jump off a waterfall. <laughs> that just sounds really busy. That does not sound like a vacation to me. So we go. Eight years of marriage, I decide I'm gonna take one for the team. First world problem, I understand. And we get there, and it's, it is a jungle, and, and we're just kind of doing all this. And so day three, we show up, and we decide, hey, we're going to take some time and go do the 9-11 Memorial Museum. And I'm going to warn you, I've yet to make it through this story in prep or in presentation without getting emotional. But we go, and as we arrive, we arrive a little bit late. That wasn't my fault. I'll let you discern whose that was. <laughs> but... We get there, and we get into the back of the line, and we kind of cruise in, and the first thing you do when you walk into this museum is you, you go in and you watch a video, and they bring you in, and people are kind of chattering in line and kind of talking back and forth, and they, they bring you in, and, and you sit down, and they start the video, and it's President Bush, and he's walking you through a timeline of that day and what it looked like. And it's, you know, it's got some of those shots that we all remember of like him leaning back to a Secret Service agent in front of an elementary school. And he walks you through some of the conversations he had that day with Condoleezza Rice and other members of his staff. And you leave with a very settled, very stirred kind of presence. You know where you are, and you know what's coming. You walk out of that video, and now there's no chattering. You can hear a pin drop in that line. And they release you to go experience what they've put together as a memorial for one of the most caustic events that's happened in our nation's history. And you walk into this giant, wide hallway just absolutely beautiful. And up on the screens, you start to see these words that are being projected, and, and with those words, you start to hear a voice coming over a speaker. And you recognize that the speaker and the screen are matching up. And you realize what you're listening to is a voice of someone who lost their life in the tower that day, and it's a voicemail to one of their loved ones. And you realize you're on hallowed ground. You walk about 30 feet further and you come to the end of this balcony and you look down about two stories into what was the bedrock, which is where those towers once stood. And those footprints are outlined and memorialized in the concrete there. To your left is the slurry wall that used to hold back the Hudson. It's now been reinforced on the other side because the buildings aren't there anymore to hold back the pressure and the weight of the water. And then right in the center of that room, this giant ceiling, is that iconic steel beam that's been twisted by the destruction. But it doesn't look like a steel beam. It looks like a coloring book because it's lit up with the numbers of the FDNY and the NYPD groups that went in and gave their lives to save so many that day. And you realize you're on hallowed ground. You go down through the bottom of the museum and you make your way to the exhibition where as you walk in, the first thing you see being projected on the wall is the impact of the first tower. From there, you turn over and you see Matt Lauer on the Today Show. And he looks over and he says, Congressman, I'm going to have to break away. Something's happened at the World Trade Center. And you realize you're on hallowed ground. You kind of make your way through the rest of the time. It took about two and a half hours. And as you get back up to the surface, you stand and you sort of overlook these two unbelievable, breathtaking reflecting ponds that are the footprints of where those buildings once stood. 
And you start to compose yourself because you're about to have to do something that feels so inappropriate, which is to go back out into the beautiful city of New York and vacation and have fun for the rest of the day. And you kind of have to sit there as you're looking at these names etched in this marble and you go, okay. And you walk off. But as you walk off, there is very much a sense that you are leaving hallowed ground. You are no longer there. I wonder sometimes for all of us if it might not be helpful to remember that instead of coming before the Lord on my phone with 10% of my attention, that my posture might not be a little bit better to come before him like this, on my knees before a king, in the posture that at some point all of us will experience because we know how the story ends. We know that every knee will bow, that every tongue will confess because he is Lord. I got to tell you today, it's not, this is where the contrast happens because just because we experience the relationship doesn't mean we skip the reverence. Let's try to remember that today. I'm not telling you the only place to pray is on your knees. I've had that question before. That's not what I mean. I mean that things operate best when we understand that relationship. My dad's here today and sitting in the front row, and so this is the only service I can kind of do this in, but I remember a conversation that we had when I was a kid, and a kid, I was probably 18, and we were at my grandparents' house, and we were in their basement. They live in the Midwest, a lot of basements down there, and we were sitting there over this antique pool table that they've had for years. It was my favorite part of my grandparents' house. And as we sat there, we were playing pool, and my dad, who's a a big, broad-shouldered guy, was kind of leaning there, and he's got a presence to him as he was leaning on this pool cue. And I was getting ready to take a shot, and he said, hey, buddy, our relationship is changing a little bit. You remember this? And he said, you know what? The things that I'm going to pass on to you as far as instruction are kind of coming to a close. You're a grown man now. And our relationship will change. I'm never going anywhere. I will always be there for you. But it's going to change as you go out and you're a grown man. Just because our relationship had changed and I was now making decisions on my own, he's still my father. And I don't talk to him like I talk to some of my buddies. I respect him because he's dad and he deserves it. Let's remember that. As we move from there, we're going to move into the next line. It says, your kingdom come. This is really important because we're talking to a king and yet we need to recognize that we are part of something bigger than ourselves. We are part of a kingdom. And our role in this kingdom is to be children. This kingdom concept is kind of tough for us to wrap our heads around sometime because it is here in part but coming in fullness, right? We're experiencing kind of little manifestations here and there of God's kingdom, and yet Scripture tells us we're not at home. So it's sort of this dynamic that's hard for us to understand at times, and uh, this is an Anglican bishop that I quote a lot because I love his view on Scripture, but he says this about the kingdom. He says, the final setting up of this kingdom has been long predicted. Even from the day of Adam's fall, the whole creation groans in expectation of it. The last prayer in the Bible points to it. The canon of Scripture almost closes with the words, come, Lord Jesus, come. He's pointing us to Revelation 22, 20 through 21, which says this, last couple of verses in the Bible. He who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. And the last word in the Bible is, Amen. 
As we move from there, the next line is so great. This is actually my favorite part of this sermon, and it says, give us each day our daily bread. Now, uh, this is kind of a special weekend for me, one that has kind of conjured a lot of reflection. Uh, Many of you know this. I'm not telling you anything you couldn't find out on the internet. I mean, our testimony has been fairly public, but I've been in recovery for the last little bit for alcoholism. And so uh, I'm celebrating a birthday this weekend, and that's kind of a sweet time. You want to know that the Lord has a sense of humor? One of the worst days of my life, we now celebrate. Makes no sense. That's what it is, right? And so in this time, it kind of has me thinking about some of the things that the Lord's brought me through over the last period as we have sort of walked through this together, me and Jesus, as he's put some really broken pieces of my life back together. And that's what he loves to do. He's good at restoration. I was reminded when I was looking at this verse of something that I was told by my sponsor early on, I was a very chaotic little guy. And so as I started to get sober, I had to start facing my life. And I'll tell you, I have a lot of respect for people who kind of don't retreat into different coping mechanisms because the reality was when I stopped retreating into a bottle to deal with all my problems and to not have to process my emotions and had to stand there and all of a sudden start facing and deal with thing, uh, dealing with them in real time, I started looking at the rest of the world and going, I don't know how you're doing this. This is really hard. And everyone went, yeah, it is. And so I would have these problems like my sponsor would look at me and go, what are you stressed about? And I'd go, well, I mean, you know, We're married, and there's a lot of stress going around that. We're trying to, you know, I don't know what it looks like to put this thing back together. Someday, you know, we may get pregnant, then we're going to have kids. And at that point, they'll probably end up in college, and i got to figure out how to pay for college. I mean, what am I going to? And he looked at me and went, you don't even have kids yet. You're worried about college tuition? Is that not where I should be? (laughs) And he goes, no, Rustin. You know what? When you get overwhelmed, here's what I want you to do. I want you to stand there, and I want you to look at your shoes. He goes, look at my shoes. Why would I look at my shoes? And he said, well, I want you to look down at your shoes and I want you to say this, stay where your feet are. Because the reality, Rustin, is you can handle where you are. You can handle your moment. What you cannot handle is tonight, next week, next month, next year. You can't handle those things. But you can handle your moment, so stay where your feet are. You know what the biblical version of stay where your feet are is? Give us each day our daily bread. I love the way uh, Matthew 6, 34 says it. We'll pop it up here on the screen, but it says, Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Gosh, that's so good. I'm going to make an audacious, like just a crazy statement right now. I am prepared to tell you why you're stressed out, which is nuts. But I'm prepared to tell you what is at the root of all your stress We can sit there in our lives and we can imagine the things that we have to do today, tomorrow, next week, next month, next year. But never have you been stressed out about all the things that you have to do and have you come alongside and spoken the truth of, but that's okay because I will have fresh mercy, fresh grace, fresh energy physically and emotionally. I will have everything I need to accomplish those things. And we're all here, so we all got through it, didn't we? The Lord continued to come through. You are stressed for this reason. You are trying to accomplish all of the things for your next 10 years on the resources you have been given today. That's why you're stressed. That's why I'm stressed. When we sit back and we go, I haven't been given weekly bread or annual bread. I've been given daily bread. All of a sudden, life becomes really simple. But in order to do that, you're going to have to sit back and know that the Lord will come through for you. Best object lesson in scripture, and I love because it ties so beautifully to what we're talking about, manna. What did God do? Every morning, he dusted the ground with this snowy bread stuff. 
the Israelites walked out, scooped some up, and went, winning. We just got this deal right here. Isn't this awesome? And in the midst of that, what did they do? They're just like us. They like to control things. I'm going to get ahead of the game. So I'm going to go store some manna in the back of my tent. He'll never know, right? Did manna keep well? No. Was it for a lack of ancient Tupperware? No. It was God's great object lesson to his children whom he loves, trying to teach them, stop trying to remove me from the equation. I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. I will always come through for you. Daily, I will give you bread. And we hear that echo in this verse here. We close with this, and it says, And forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. Recap real quick. We know that God wants a relationship with us at the end of chapter 10. We come in, and then from there we see that that relationship's echoed, and the first words that we say to God echo that relationship. Father, hallowed relationship and authority. From there, we kind of come in and we recognize it's not just about us, but we're part of a kingdom. And then from there, we go, well, what do we do when we're not before God? Well, don't worry, because he'll take care of you, because each day you have daily bread. And then lastly, what do we do? How do we leave his presence? We leave humbly. You see, we, we stand before him and we say, listen, here's the deal. You and I are not the same. I am a sinner, and I'm coming before you because you are my only reconciliation for that. But because you're my example, because you're a really good dad, I'm going to follow your lead, follow your example that you've shown me, and because you've extended me forgiveness, I will extend forgiveness to those who have hurt me. I will follow your lead, dad, and I will go out and I will live humbly among any of those who are indebted to me. It's just this wonderful little kind of narrative here on Christian living. This is a great way for us to be in this interaction with the Lord. All right, I'm going to close with this, and I think this is really important. If for some reason you get either of these two aspects out of whack, your relationship with the Lord will suffer. If you don't understand, and this is why I think these two things are so foundational for us to build upon, if you don't understand that God desires a relationship with you, you are never going to turn to him. You are going to have that concept of God that says you are distant, you are disinterested, you are kind of this cosmic disciplinarian who's just waiting to kind of for me to screw something up so you can spite me. You're never going to turn to that, guys. But if you recognize that he is a good, good father, that that's who he is, and that you are loved by him, then all of a sudden that changes the game. If you recognize that his plan for correction in your life is not to send you away to the corner, but to pull you closer, and that's where correction happens. It happens within relationship, not within rejection. That changes everything, doesn't it? That you don't have to fear the hand of the Lord because he is for you and he will correct you. He disciplines the ones he loves, says Hebrews. But, but it's going to happen within relationship because he's a loving, good dad. That you can turn to. That you can rest in. That's your stronghold. That's your refuge. If you mess up the authority part, here's what happens. God loses kind of this idea of reverence or authority in your life, and he starts to get smaller. As God starts to get smaller, what ends up happening is this. He starts to kind of come to this place where we start to feel like, because he's smaller and smaller, we sort of understand him. You know, I've read the Bible a bunch, this and this. I sort of understand God. Let me tell you something. You don't understand God. You may know him, but you do not understand him. And there's a big difference there. When God becomes understandable, 
and we think we understand him, how do you hand over the problems that you don't understand to a being that you do? Let him be who he says he is. Let him be that all-powerful, all-authoritative being that you don't understand and simply accept the fact that I need to fall before you as a king. And then when you sit there and you realize the enormity of who he is, that we will someday stand before him, staring into his presence, and we will never be able to exhaust him. And then as you kind of kneel before a king, don't be surprised in that posture of kneeling when you come and you go, you are the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings. When you hear that voice, that relationship kicking in saying, child, come closer. See, I have a place for you. I have the good portion. It's right here by my side. But if you get that authority thing out of whack, all of a sudden it kind of all comes apart. Here's your two final points for today. This is what I want you to walk away with. I want you to know that God desires a relationship with you and that he will help you grow in it just like he did Martha. He will pull you close. He will correct you and show you where you're wrong and he'll pull you closer. You have to know that. The second thing I want you to see is this, that when we come before God, we need to come to him with reverence as before a king and then not be surprised when we hear that voice calling us closer as a child. But don't skip the reverence just because the relationship's possible. I share this from time to time. It won't be the last time you hear it. When I preach, I have a very specific intention. And it sounds malicious, and so I'll qualify this, but it's to burden you. I don't walk in here. If I walked in here tonight and, and tried to just solve all of your questions about this passage, A, I'd fall far short. But B, that's not always super helpful, is it? I want to sit down with you at times like these, and I want to just go, listen, have you thought about this? Have you stretched yourself in understanding God in this way? I want to plant a thorn in your heart that you sort of have to spend the week working out with the Lord. If you struggle with the relationship side of knowing that he wants you close, and you sort of kind of become comfortable or have accepted that distant God, that cosmic disciplinarian concept, and some of the things I've said today, you've gone, Ugh, I don't love that. That's the thorn. Work it out with the Lord. He'll be really good to show you where your posture may change a little bit. And if you're like me and at times you've struggled with this reverence idea, God's sort of become your buddy. I hope that today it kind of, we remember a little bit, just a bump back in the direction of reverence because it's a healthy bump. And that's the thorn that we'll sort of work out as we figure out this contrasting concept of relationship and authority. I, I kind of want to spend just a minute now and just kind of pray over you guys because I know this is sort of a lot to deal with. So let's close in prayer. Lord, I, I really do. I, I lift up everyone in this room today, myself included. And I just pray over the group, Lord, that as, as we sit back and we have some who struggle with this relationship idea, that you would be really, really good to, to meet them right where they are. To look at them and to go, child, I've got some good portion over here for you. I've got some, some things that I want to show you, that I want to kind of draw you closer for. Those things you're worried about as far as falling short, come closer. I will give you the good portion. I will kind of work these out with you. And Lord, for those of us that struggle to at times show reverence, to come before you with the appropriate level of respect, or Lord, you just want to grow us into a deeper knowledge of how big and the enormity of who you are, Lord. My prayer in that is that you would kind of just continue to bump us along. Continue to show us that we sit back in reverence, but we recognize that that reverence has an incredible, extravagant love for us that we will never understand. 
Lord, for all of us, my prayer is just that you'd continue to meet us where we are. Love and care for us, Father. Continue to pour into us, and we thank you for who you are. We pray this in your precious name. Amen. Amen.